practice of Vipassana meditation is the practice of a certain kind of investigation. It's an investigation in as deep and a profound way as possible of who we are, of what life is, and of what we aren't. It's an investigation of the nature of the body. What is this thing that we carry around? It's an investigation of movement, it's an investigation of the breath, the sensations in the body, of the different levels of subtle energy that we can feel in the body. There's a tremendous amount going on just beneath the surface level of our perception. Meditation is a way of training the mind to see beneath the surface and beneath the appearances. It's an investigation of the mind, of thoughts and feelings and emotions. It's an investigation of intentions and of our aspirations. It's an investigation of silence. Just as it's said that Eskimos have so many different words for snow. The Buddhists have a lot of different words for silence. A teacher of mine once gave a talk on 21 kinds of silence. There's a lot of subtlety to explore. There's an investigation and exploration of what discriminating wisdom means. What is this faculty of the mind that can discriminate wisely? And it's possible also to be mindful of consciousness itself. This very great mystery of the heart-mind this creative process of consciousness, that which is knowing, we can also be mindful of that. Vipassana practice is bringing us just to the heart of wisdom, just to the very heart of it. There are two perspectives or two avenues of practice which fulfill one another and complement one another and actually make possible this investigation. (coughs) The first of these is the understanding of meditation as a science of the mind. The great power of the Buddha's enlightenment, the amazing clarity that came out of that enlightenment 
was his understanding of how things work, of how the mind works, of what it is that leads to suffering, of what it is that leads to happiness. The understanding of what's what, how things happen. Could you turn that down a little bit? Our lives are not unfolding in a haphazard way. They're unfolding lawfully. We can see how laws operate very easily in the physical world. You know, and it's in so many domains it's becoming so apparent to us and how it touches our lives. You know, we do certain actions that pollute the environment. These actions have consequences. These actions have results. We pollute the environment. Certain things follow from that action. Just like these physical laws, which are so obvious to us, there are also laws of the mind, which are not so obvious, even though we're living them in our lives. And the laws which the Buddha discovered through his awakening were precisely those things, precisely those laws of understanding which show us what kinds of actions produce suffering for ourselves and other people. What kind of actions produce happiness, produce peace? It's not accidentally, it's not by chance. If we don't understand these laws, then we're going blindly through our life, wanting happiness, but very often doing the very things which lead us to suffering, out of ignorance, out of not understanding. The understanding of these laws of the mind its not simply a question of having some theoretical interest in this. When I was at college quite a few years ago, I was studying philosophy. And what was so frustrating to me, even then, before I had had any involvement with meditative practice at all. But what was so frustrating was what seemed to me the disconnection between the study of philosophical ideas and how we lived. And the whole study was on the abstract theoretical level, very disconnected from my then 20-year-old life. And what was so inspiring to me when I came in, came in contact with the teachings, I was in the Peace Corps in Thailand, the interest in understanding the mind was not theoretical. The interest was actually how it affects our lives. And one of the things that becomes so obvious is that how we're living our lives 
does not affect only us. It affects the people close to us. It affects all people on the planet. It affects the planet itself. So what this means is that as we sit here, watching the breath and doing the walking meditation, what it means is that we are not practicing just for ourselves. Because everything we do, every action that we take, and this very profoundly, has consequences for all other people. So we take refuge in the Dhamma. Well, that's what we did last night. What does that mean, taking refuge in the Dhamma? It means that we take refuge in the understanding that there is a natural law, that things are happening lawfully, and that we can understand this natural law. And when we understand it, we put ourselves in harmony with it. When we put ourselves in harmony with it, we lead happy and peaceful lives. And so the implication of this is that there is an actual path to follow. There is an actual training to undertake. And that this path leads someplace. And the training leads someplace. The most salient feature of this path of investigation is that we must each do it for ourselves. So that is both a tremendous responsibility and also a tremendous empowerment. It means that nobody's going to come around and touch you on your third eye and psh, you know, the great cosmic awakening. And you might get some Shakti, you might get a little energy hit. But wisdom comes through our own efforts. Wisdom means this understanding of how things work. How do we understand? By looking. By looking very carefully. And it's this aspect of looking that is the science of meditation. It means that we sharpen our observing power. So as we begin the practice, and you've probably seen it today, the observing power of mind can sometimes be quite weak. So we need to sharpen it. And as we sharpen it, we begin to see things with increasing clarity. And we see both what actually is happening in each moment, and we also see the laws which are governing the process, the laws which are governing the unfolding. The form and techniques that we use in the practice, these are the tools of this investigation. 
the forms and the techniques are quite arbitrary in a sense, just to say that there are many techniques and many tools of practice. They're serving a purpose. The purpose they serve is to sharpen our power of observation. That's what mindfulness means. Mindfulness means observing power of mind. When we're sloppy or inattentive, when we're not observing carefully, then we can see. We can understand the lawful nature, the lawful unfolding. So what are the forms that we use? What are the forms of practice? One of them, which you've been doing all day, is just the alternation of sitting and walking. It's as if things have been reduced to the simplest possible level. Now, in Vipassana, we're not suggesting you visualize a mandala with a hundred thousand deities in different colors and different postures and you know, okay, this is your practice. You visualize that and you hold it and you enter into that mandala. No. In, out. <laughs> Rise, fall. It's basic. We've just gotten it down. This is the no-frill flight. (laughs) It's the same in the walking. You know, we're we're using a technique of practice to, to train ourselves in observing. What are we observing? Lifting, moving, and placing. Extremely simple. Difficult to do, because our mind is untrained, our mind wanders, gets lost all the time. So the first part of our training is the collecting of the attention. We give it these very simple objects and continually train ourselves to come back. Every time we go off, come back again, begin again, and begin again, begin again, many, many times. Slowly we begin to see a development of our power of observation. And it happens in stages. We're with the breath. At first we may simply be aware that the breath is coming in and out. We may not be able to discriminate very clearly the particular sensations, but at least we're present. We know, yeah, this is an in-breath, this is an out-breath. That's a big step. Already we've collected the attention to some extent. The second phase of development happens when we can increase the duration of our our attention. It's interesting. You may have noticed the mind is so slippery. You know, you're watching an in-breath. An in-breath is not that long. But in the duration of a single in-breath, you can even be making the note in... (laughs) It's like it's hardly gotten a quarter of the way in. 
and the mind's off, and the mind can go off and back very quickly. You could be off and back, and the breath still hasn't even reached halfway yet. <laughs> and so part of the development of our minds, of this observing power, is just training. It's this, it's this practice to keep the attention steadily, of increasing duration. So maybe by tomorrow you'll be able to get to the halfway point of the breath before it goes off. And three quarters. And a whole in-breath. When that happens, take a breath. <laughs> Success. And so this is, a, this is an important part of what's to be practiced. Increasing the duration of attention. What's helpful in this regard is not to have too grandiose aims. If you come into the sitting and think, okay, I'm going to catch every breath this hour, it's hopeless. Even ten breaths is hopeless. If we come in and we say, okay, I'm going to arouse the energy, arouse the effort for a single in-breath or a single rising movement, that's within our capacity. Single rising. Single falling. And we do that again and again and again. And slowly the mind actually gets trained to stay with each breath, or with each step, or with each movement. This is tremendously important because <coughs> it is the basis for deepening our power of concentration. And concentration is the means, is the vehicle for opening up to new levels. So the first step in the training <clears throat> is just collecting the attention, knowing the breath is happening, or knowing the step is happening. Second step is increasing the duration of our attention. The third step in the development is beginning to look carefully enough and feel it carefully enough so that we can begin to <clears throat> actually perceive the many different sensations <coughs> that happen within a single breath. It's not one thing, it's many, many separate sensations happening. Can we feel that? And just as we did the walking meditation in the hall this morning, we were just in a simple movement of shifting weight, how many different things could be felt? There is a whole world that is happening within very simple activities. So the third step in this development is becoming clear enough so that we can see these different elements clearly. With this power of observation, there's no need to particularly think about things. It's not to think, okay, what's this sensation, and what's that sensation? If your hand is in fire, do you have to think, oh yeah, this is hot? <laughs> no. 
there's an immediate intuitive understanding. The sensations that we feel in the breath, in walking, are not esoteric sensations. They're just the very ordinary ones of warmth or coolness or pressure or tingling or tightness or lightness. And so there's no need to think about it. It's just to feel it carefully enough and in that moment of careful knowing, we will know what the sensation is, just as we know that the fire is hot. So sitting and walking, the alternation through the day, that's one form of practice that helps us to sharpen this power of observation. Second aspect of the technique or the form which is of tremendous help, and that is the form or technique of slowing down. If you slow down your movements, you will be able to feel in much greater detail what it is that's happening. This slowing down facilitates a caring attitude in the mind. So that instead of being aware in a sloppy way, in a kind of half-hearted way, there's this dropping back and really being with each movement that we make with a tremendous delicacy and a tremendous care. This will help you so much. The subtlety of it has to do with how we're slowing down. Because sometimes people slow down in a way that sort of holding oneself back, you know, sort of like charging horses, and the horses are trying to leap ahead and that doesn't work very well because then we just get tense and we get tight and we get frustrated and we get impatient. It's not so much holding ourselves back. It's an attitude of being settled back. You just settle back into the moment and let the movement come out of that place of balance. It's as if you're doing, you know, some beautiful classical dance. It's everybody's opportunity to be a dancer. With a simple movement. Just the movement of the arm. There's a tremendous beauty when we take care. You've come to this place, this rather odd and strange place, there's nothing else to do. (laughs) I mean, it's quite amazing in that regard. Nobody's talking to you, (laughs) other than your yogi job, which also can be done, although not necessarily super slowly, can be done with great care and mindfulness. 
the whole game is about paying careful attention. So one is this continuity of sitting and walking. The second form that we use to develop our observing power is slowing down in a very settled back way, in a graceful way, bringing this careful attention to each movement. The third technique that we use, and greatly, it greatly facilitates a quality of accuracy in the mind, is the tool of mental noting. This mental noting is like a frame on each moment's experience. And just like we might put a frame around the picture in order to enhance it, in order that we see it more clearly, that's the function of the noting in each moment. We frame it, and in the framing of it, there's an exactness and an accuracy to our perception. There's no confusion in that moment. In, out, arise, fall. And as the days go on, we'll be noting many, many things, many different kinds of sensations and thoughts and feelings. In each moment, we put the note on it, very softly. There are different ways to use this technique of noting, and you can experiment and see which way works the best for you. One way is to note just at the beginning of the object. So you note it at the beginning, and then simply feel for the rest of the time. Another way of noting is to cover the object with the note. So for example, you would extend the duration of the note in or out to cover the breath from beginning to end. And some people find that's helpful in keeping the mind from slipping off the object. Other people repeat the note for the duration of the experience. In, 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 out, 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 out. Whatever way seems to work for you, develop that particular form of it. There is a great beauty in this precision of awareness. Now, it's like looking through a microscope. Now, in our ordinary perception, it's like looking through a microscope that's not quite in focus. Now, when you're looking through it and you see things, you see that something is there, but we don't know exactly what it is. And you know that moment, either through a microscope or binoculars or a telescope, whatever kind of instrument you're using, you know that moment just when it comes into focus. There's a kind of satisfaction or a kind of completeness in that moment. There's, a, there's just a connection. Oh, yeah, this is what that is. What we're doing is focusing the microscope of our mind. 
and there's the amazing sense of satisfaction when we actually see clearly moment after moment yeah, there's this, there's this, there's this so this is the first perspective this is this is meditation as a science. It's exact, it's accurate, it's precise. We want to see clearly, moment after moment, what's happening. The second perspective of meditation practice, which really complements and fulfills the first, is understanding that meditation is also an art. Understanding the art of the practice. And it's an art in the sense that we balance the nuances of awareness. We see not only what it is that's happening, but also how we're relating to what's happening. And this is an essential point of what we're doing. There is a difference between awareness and mindfulness. And it's important to understand what this difference is. We can be aware without being mindful. We have a pain in the knee. We're aware of it. But we may hate it. I hate this pain, and I wish it would go away. That's not mindfulness. We're aware, but with this strong reaction. Mindfulness is a very special kind of awareness. It's a narrow track within the whole spectrum of awareness. Mindfulness is that quality of awareness in which there is no judgment, no reaction, no comparing, no evaluating, just the simple bare attention with respect to whatever the object is. What are some examples of awareness without mindfulness? They'll probably be quite familiar to you. Common tendency of the mind is to sit and be lost in pleasant fantasies or unpleasant fantasies. You know, we sit and the mind just creates a world and we get lost in it. The hour goes quickly. <laughs> Oh, that was a good sitting. <laughs> we may be aware that these fantasies are going on, but we're not being mindful. We're lost in them, we're carried away in them. We may not be mindful that we're actually enjoying them, which is what feeds are being lost in them. And it's like being in the movies. You know, the, the moment when you're 
you're totally absorbed in the movie, and then it's over and you come out, and then there's that moment of you know, the reality shift. Oh yeah, that was just a movie. That's what it's like when we actually become mindful of the fantasies rather than simply aware. Because with mindfulness, we're not lost. We're not reacting. We're not identified. There are many kinds and ways of being aware of pain. That is not mindfulness. We can be aware of pain with self-pity. Or we just get caught in this feeling sorry for ourselves. You know, poor me, I have all this pain. We can be aware of pain with fear, which is not mindfulness. Fear is a contraction, a pulling back, a closing off. We don't like to feel it. We can be aware of pain or unpleasant things with a complaining mind. I saw this very strongly one year when I was practicing in Burma. It was tremendously noisy. Sort of about the, the, the centers on the outskirts of Rangoon, and there are villages all around it. It's sort of villages which are really part of the city. And each of these villages had loudspeakers. And they were blasting this music all day and all night. And they were doing construction right in the monastery, right outside my room, and they were banging this metal on metal. And I really thought I was in this, some kind of insane asylum. <laughs> and I would be going through the whole day with this kind of grumpy mind, you know, that I'd come all that way to practice, and why did I have to play these loudspeakers? And I really had to remind myself that I was in their country, and they could <laughs> do what they wanted. What was interesting to see was, for a long time, this complaining, grumpy mind was the filter on everything. And I wasn't being mindful of it. I didn't know it was there. And so it colored. Colored everything. It colored my awareness of the breath, of sensations. That's not mindfulness. Because there's this reaction in the mind. As soon as I became mindful of that relationship <coughs> to experience, the relationship of grump, it was amazing. You know, the, the whole thing cleared up, and then there was just sound. There's a subtle kind of reaction we can have to pain, which you might watch out for as we go into it more and explore it. And that is the bargaining mentality, you know, where we really think we're being mindful. We're going into it, we're noting it, we're watching it, but there's this subtle attitude in the mind, I'll watch you if you'll go away. You know, that's not mindfulness either. It's awareness, the awareness of the pain is there, but it's not mindfulness. There are different ways that we can relate to the practice itself that is not mindfulness. 
something that came as a big hindrance for me, and again took took a while to see it, was how expectation came disguised as effort. I thought I was making effort. I thought I was arousing this effort to be attentive. And yet it really wasn't the purity of right effort. It was expectation. And I could just feel myself watching each breath with metaphorically the eyes wide open waiting to see what was going to happen. Okay, I watched the breath. (laughs) And every little thing that happened, instead of just being in the moment with the experience, there was that edge of expectation. This is a big hindrance because expectation leads to impatience, it leads to discouragement. There are a lot of consequences of expectation. So we have to take care to see it when it arises. The seeing of it is enough to help us just drop back in just one breath. Not watching the breath in order for something to happen. Watch for the in order to mind. Now watch for that flavor because it's a big hindrance. Okay, so if there are all these kinds of awareness which are not mindfulness, you know, this enjoyment of our fantasy life, or all the different reactions to painful or unpleasant situations, or different kinds of relationship to the practice itself of expectation or impatience, how can we recognize these aspects that keep us from being mindful? Because they're subtle. You know, we think because there's awareness that we think we're actually doing the practice, but we're not. So how do we recognize it? How do we tell? How do we know? There are a few very clear signals. One is to pay careful attention to the tone of the note. Noting is a powerful and helpful tool of practice because it accomplishes many things for us. It allows us to be exact, to be accurate, to be concurrent, to be present. And the tone of it also shows us what our relationship to the object is. If you're starting to be with the breath and you begin hearing in and out as commands, you'll hear it in the tone, in, out. (laughs) (laughs) The tone is telling you something. As we get into watching other things, watch the tone of the note as you note pain or discomfort. Is the tone of the note a gritted teeth tone, or is it a soft tone? Very often with the noting of thoughts, people frequently get very impatient with thoughts. Instead of seeing it as just another object, thinking, 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 and the the whole force of judgment 
Judgment about the thought, self-judgment, is contained in that tone. So that's a signal. That's something to pay attention to. When you see that the tone is reactive in some way, soften it. And you'll see a certain magic take place. By softening the tone of the note, the mind state actually changes. So it's a very useful tool. There's another signal that we're not being mindful that happens particularly in the walking meditation or in moving about. And that is the feeling of rushing. You know, you're going from one place to another. Is there that sense of rush? Is there that sense of toppling forward? Is there a sense of having the attention ahead of yourself? As if there's some place you have to catch up to. That feeling of rushing is a very clear feedback that we're not just in the moment, that we're not settled back into the moment. So stop for a moment. Stop, take a few breaths, begin moving again from inside the movement, not from anticipating where we're going. There's one other feedback which tells us that we're not being mindful, and it might be the most the most clear and perhaps the most frequent. And that is the sense of struggle. You're sitting, you're walking, you're moving about. If you feel that there's a struggle going on, that struggle is saying something. And what it's saying is that there is something present which is not being accepted. There's something going on which we're not accepting. And it's the non-acceptance which is creating the struggle. Just as a few examples. Sitting watching the breath and you just feel yourself, after some time, struggling to stay with the breath. Take a look at what else is happening that you may not be opening to. It might be pain. You know, that you're in conflict with instead of just allowing. It may be the fact that a lot of thoughts are coming and that we're not accepting of that, we're not open to that. So we're trying to stay with the breath, a lot of thoughts are coming, we get into this conflict, we get into this struggle. It's tremendously useful to recognize that state and instead of plowing ahead, I'm not pushing oneself, one's way through the struggle, stop, open up, see what's going on. That's okay, that's okay, it's okay. Whatever it is, use the it's okay mantra. And you'll see immediately the sense of struggle disappears. Meditation as art as an art, is this process of opening, of softening, 
of relaxing into what's happening, of creating this receptive quality of mind. What characterizes meditation as an art are certain qualities of our mind. They're the qualities of interest. They're the qualities of appreciation. There's the quality of willingness. Something comes up, and there's this interest to discover what it is. Interest is our entree into the object. Sometimes people come and think, well, I have a lot of interest and appreciation and willingness in my life, but everything here is so boring. You know, in and out, and lift in place, and all day long. It's not that things are boring. Somebody held your head underwater, how boring would the breath be? You wouldn't be bored at all. You'd be vitally interested. <laughs> Where is the next breath? Just reflect for a moment. You know, we are so used to not going to the depths of things. The process of breathing is an absolute miracle. <laughs> it is sustaining our life. You don't believe me? Try stopping breathing. <laughs> you know, we can go without food for a while, we can go without water for a while, we can't go without the breath for too long. Something very extraordinary is happening in this system with every breath. What is it? What's happening that is actually sustaining life? We can feel it. It's not only a question of kind of knowing the theoretical explanation. Our mind-body is the laboratory. Meditation is to bring it from the level of abstraction to the level of our direct experience of it. Because that's what makes the whole thing alive. Pay attention to the breath, understanding each breath is sustaining our life. There's something interesting about that. And you miss it on one breath, fine. You get another chance. You keep getting chances to look carefully, to feel it carefully. You know, we look at our thoughts. Mostly in the beginning of practice, people get very impatient with their thoughts. They just want to not be carried away so much and just be able to stay with the breath. But again, meditation as an art is bringing this quality of interest and appreciation. What is a thought? Thoughts are amazing phenomena. And we can see it. We see it. We can see it so clearly. When we're not aware of thoughts, when we're not mindful of thoughts, they totally dominate our lives. They rule us. We are the slaves of thoughts. 
Lord says, do this. You go off in that direction. Lord says, do this. You come to IMS. So it's, what led you here? You had a thought. You know, and here you are. You may have wished you hadn't had a thought. <laughs> What's amazing is how powerful, how powerfully these thoughts dominate our lives. Where do they come from? Where do these thoughts come from? One exercise I like to do in meditation, just as a way of kind of understanding or looking or, or taking interest, just imagine every thought that comes is coming from the person behind me or in front of me, <laughs> depending how I'm sitting. It puts a whole different perspective you know, and just what this phenomenon is. And what to me is endlessly fascinating is to see how when we're mindful of a thought, it has no power at all. It's just like this little, this little blip of nothing, a phantom, a ghost of an experience. And when we're not mindful of them, they dominate our lives. Something, something quite extraordinary is happening over and over again. Are we present enough? Are we interested enough just to watch it? To really understand, okay, what is this process? You know, that's so impactful on our lives. The same thing with emotions. You know, we have so many different kinds of emotions come. We're happy, we're sad, we're depressed, we're excited, we're interested, we're bored, we're lonely, we're angry, we're... So many different things. Mostly we're just so caught up in the content of the emotion. And we're so identified with it as if we're being tossed about. Feel this way, feel this way. You know, kind of just battered by this rush of emotion. So many different ones during the day. There's another whole perspective we can take. Instead of being lost and identified with the story of them, can we take interest? What is the energy of this emotion? What is it? You know, this sadness, this happiness, this whatever. Can we go into it and explore it and discover what it is? This is the art of meditation. It's this quality of willingness and interest to discover what this life is. And it's all here. The, the amazing thing to discover what life is, you don't have to travel around the globe. It's right here. Got carried away. I'm only halfway through here. <laughs> the science of the practice 
is the quality of exactness, of accuracy, of framing each moment so we really know what's going on. The art of the practice is watching our relationship to the experience so that we're actually being mindful rather than some kind of awareness that is reactive and not being mindful. And in the art of the practice, we really strengthen these qualities of interest because that is the key to understanding. most of this for another time, but I'll end with uh, something that I came across a couple of years ago, and it just was so interesting to me uh, as it applied to meditation practice. There was a book called Chaos. It was about this new field of science which is the study of, of chaos, which is the examination of disorder in the universe. And some examples of phenomena that are disordered are things like weather patterns, in the sense that they never exactly repeat themselves. You know, and if they did, our forecasts would be a lot better than they are. Because there's, a, there's a, a sense of disorder or chaos to the system. The same principle has been seen in the fluctuations of different populations of wildlife. You know, when, they, when they study the populations of a particular species, there are these fluctuations which they can't explain according to any order or pattern. It's discontinuous and it's erratic. And so it reminded me of experience in meditation, you know, where things don't repeat themselves. It's always different. And so it's this understanding that behind the appearance of order, behind the facade of order, whether it's in the external world and physical phenomena, or the apparent order of our lives. And we think we know who we are, and we're kind of marching right through life with a sense of surety. Underneath this facade, this appearance, is a much deeper kind of chaos deeper kind of unpredictability. But then something else was discovered, that underneath the chaos was a more mysterious kind of order. And that also is what opens up in the meditation practice. We get past the superficial appearance or sense of who we are, and things get very chaotic for a while. You know, and in very powerful ways, there's, there's all kinds of dissolution. 
right, of systems. But we go deeper and we begin to see that beneath the chaos is a more mysterious kind of order. And there's something which characterizes this deeper mystery which has tremendous significance for how we practice. And that is that this, is, this principle was described in terms of you know, the, the physical systems being studied in science, but so applicable to what we're doing here. The principle is that tiny differences in input can make tremendous differences in output. And this was expressed in something called the butterfly effect. It said that the effect of a butterfly flapping its wings in China can change the weather patterns a month later in Boston. Tiny input into a system can have overwhelming output. There's the, the technical phraseology for this is sensitive dependence on initial conditions. So we have a system, just a little change in the conditions of the system. A month later, there's a storm in Boston. What this means for us is that very small increments of input into the practice can have very significant results. It may not seem like a lot as you're watching a single breath or feeling a single movement. It may feel like the butterfly just flapping its wings, not very significant. It has tremendous significance. And this is borne out by people who have done the practice. Don't underestimate or undervalue the small things. You're reaching for a door. You're standing up. Not with tightness, not with forcing. Really doing it from the inside, feeling very delicately what is going on. This is what our practice is about. This is the exploration. This is a quotation from Einstein. Where the world ceases to be the stage for personal hopes and desires, where we as free beings behold it in wonder to question and to contemplate, there we enter the realm 
of art and of science. Common to both is the devotion to something beyond the personal and removed from the arbitrary. Really the practice is entering the realm of art and science. Where we go beyond personal desires, personal hopes, where we enter this in, into, into this exploration of actually what life is, of who we are. So that's what we're doing. These are the reason for developing the tools of careful observation, and sensitive, sensitive relationship to each moment. 